Coming up on today's show, Joe Thomas gets enshrined into the Browns' ring of honor, and is he the reason the Browns got stomped yesterday? Todd Gurley, is he the best running back in the NFL? The Jaguars are fading fast. Plus, are we sleeping on Phillip Rivers and the Chargers? Is the John Gruden era going to come to an end before it even begins? And finally, we take your questions from Reddit and much, much more on a Monday edition of The Tomahawk Show. Welcome back to the Tomahawk Show, presented by Uninterrupted. I am your humble co-host, Andrew Hawkins, joined by a guy who is allowed not to have any humility today. As always, Joe Thomas, now the latest member of the Browns Ring of Honor. How many people are in the Browns Ring of Honor, Joe? So I'm actually physically not in the Ring of Honor yet, but what they did is they wanted to... Oh, do they... Do they, do they physically put you in a ring? Yeah, they, they put you in a ring, and uh, you got to fight a lion. And if you get out, then okay. they put your name on the stadium. Ah, okay. That no. makes so much sense. No, but actually, uh, my name is not even in the ring of honor yet. So all the Browns Ring of Honor members are NFL Hall of Famers. And I think we all kind of agreed that we didn't want to change the precedent <clears throat> and put me in the ring of honor right now. But uh, – the Browns, holy crap, hang on. <laughs> For those listening, and I don't think we're cutting this out, Joe, who is <laughs> fresh off of his big night, where he was honored at halftime of the Browns game for his 10,363 consecutive snaps, is a little hungover right now. <laughs> or maybe still under the influence. And a whole yeah. day of yelling and a weekend of partying is caught up to me and this uh, Monday at 7 a.m. Tomahawk podcast. Uh, when when it came out in the schedule, I knew it was a, <laughs> rough, a rough day for me. Like, uh, this is one of the weeks you had circled. Yeah, I had this one circled where I was going to mail this one in. So I uh, hope you guys enjoy <laughs> it. But but my point was the, the Browns wanted to honor the NFL record for the 10,000-plus snaps, and they wanted to be able to put that number up in the ring of honor as sort of like a motivator maybe for the current players and the a reminder of the of the record to the fans um so they wanted to do that right after my career was over and so that's what we were doing this weekend which was really special mm -hmm. it was really a lot of fun I had a ton of former players that uh were a big part of that streak come back and celebrated with me uh all my family was in town we had a bunch of friends from cleveland that we got together on Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night, and uh, now we're licking our wounds here on the Tomahawk Show. <laughs> oh, I love it, man. Look, for those listening, make sure you interact with us on social media, at Tomahawk Show, Instagram, and Twitter. Use the hashtag Tomahawk. Uh, Joe, you know what? That, the Browns told me the same deal. They said that they didn't want to change up the way that they did things, so if I make it into the Hall of Fame, that they will 100% put me in the yeah, ring of honor yeah, that for the Browns. Sense. That's not a hot So we'll just... Yeah, we'll just wait it out and see what happens. Um, you know it's lit when it's the morning and you haven't even reached the stage of hangover yet. Yeah. Like you're still Yeah, the hangover like, will hit about still hours away. Yeah, hangover <laughs> will be here about noon. <laughs> All right, it is Monday morning, and usually we do a quick three and out on topics, hot topics going around the league, but a lot happened this weekend. Joe's feeling a little bit groggy, so we're just going to let you guys – take it, touch on whatever you want. So let's get into it. Oh, man, I love it. All right, well, the Browns did not play well on your special day. Mm. Uh, Thank you. It, 
Some people on Twitter said it was a tribute to you. I'm not saying that. <laughs> but what do you, what went wrong, man? As much as you can tell me yeah. without yakking all over your mic. <laughs> you know, watching the game, which I got to watch a little bit of it, most of the game, I was running around doing uh, ceremony type stuff. But it seemed like their run defense was not the same as it has been all year. They really specifically struggled with the way that the Chargers like to spread the field horizontally with – they're different versions of jet sweeps and bubble screens and RPOs. Um, and I was actually really impressed with the Chargers offense as a whole. We know what Phillip Rivers is. He's going to complete a ton of passes. He's going to move the ball up and down the field. He's not very mobile. But they got this Melvin Gordon guy who seems to be pretty good. And this Keenan Allen. Like, they've got a ton of weapons that nobody talks about on the Chargers. And their defense is pretty solid. Last three weeks, their defense has really stepped up. And all of a sudden – they're, they're not going to get the notice that they should because they play in L.A. with the Rams, and the Rams are a better team. And mm-hmm. they've been like the redheaded stepchild forever because they've been playing in San Diego. And so they right. still don't get a lot of notice, especially now they're playing in a soccer stadium. But let me tell you, the Los Angeles Chargers are a pretty good football team. And I know the Browns didn't play all that well this weekend, but this was the first game that the Browns were run out of the stadium. And I'm giving uh, uh, at least a little bit of that credit to the Chargers. Yeah, I mean, that's it's funny because that's even on the rundown. The Chargers, the best team nobody talks about. I mean, Phillip Rivers, yeah. he's thrown 15 touchdowns to three interceptions, completing almost 70% of his passes. They're four and two. And yesterday, like you said, I now I kind of called this when we were talking about the Baker's dozen and predicting the record. But I do. I still feel like uh, Phillip Rivers ass is a little chapped from them losing on Christmas Eve back in. <laughs> 2016 and preventing a uh, winless season. Mm-hmm. I still think he's mad about that. So I think he could, they came out firing, yeah. but they were like, they're a really good football team. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree. They are a really good football team and, and it seems like they're getting better. I, I've loved Anthony Lynn as their head coach for a long time. He was actually a running backs coach in Cleveland, my first couple seasons. And I always liked his mentality. He was a, he was a Parcells guy. So he's kind of like old school. We played in the NFL. Um, mm-hmm. He's kind of a little bit of a tough guy. He reminds me a little bit of Hugh, like where he, he's got a lot of um, – he, he gets a lot of respect from the players and he demands respect. He's, he's big into like discipline and toughness. But I yeah. think the players like that about him because it's not phony. You know, it's like who he is. Right. And right. it seems like he's doing a really good job out there. I mean, it's, it's easy when you do have Phillip Rivers. But, I mean, hey, plenty of guys screwed it up out in – I was going to say. He got fired, so – like that is not the easy button at all all the time hats off to uh, anthony lynn and the job he's doing out there because they are in my opinion the best team nobody's talking about man they anthony lynn was the running back coach actually he was the only coach when i went and tried out for the browns in 2008 he was the only coach that talked to me while i was there i swear yeah came up to me sat down literally he was the only coach that had a conversation with me yeah, he's always been that type of guy, I think, just off the field. And so that's where he get, garners a lot of respect from his players because he's a good man, good person. And obviously yeah. he's he's doing a really good job out there. And he's pushing all the right buttons right now. So it'll be interesting to see how far they can take this and if Philip Rivers can finally get to that Super Bowl. I mean, uh, I had this conversation on Cleveland Browns Daily earlier in the week where I compared Philip Rivers' career to uh, Andy Dalton's. And they, like – shot venom right back at me like oh, <laughs> Philip Rivers is way better I'm like well guys I, I realize that he's had a more accomplished career because he's like 10 years older than Andy Dalton 
But if you look right. at like what they've done so far in their career statistically, probably p- pretty similar. And right now, the thing holding back both of them in everybody's mind is their amount of success in the playoffs, of which Andy Dalton has had none and Philip Rivers has had basically <laughs> none. So if those guys ever break through like, and get to the Super Bowl or win a Super Bowl, all of a sudden we're going to be talking about them as one of the elite quarterbacks in the NFL. You're right, man. Watching that game yesterday, one of the things that stood out to me was Baker's lack of weapons. Yep. Not like, well, they have good players, and we know that they're, they are definitely upgraded from what they used to be, but in the receiver position, it was just scarce. And they were already down injuries. They had no Higgins. But, I mean, with JG now in New England, which the more I think about it is like a spoil, spoiling of riches. Somebody asked me the question last year, who are the best players you've ever played against? And I'm like, from a practice position, like in practice, guys who I felt like were just different than everybody else. They were just like way better. And I always say five players. I say Tom Brady was way better than anybody on the field and way better than anyone I've seen play quarterback. Josh Gordon was just way better than everybody else, just naturally. A.J. Green was just way better than everybody else. Joe Thomas was just way better than everybody else. So much so, he didn't even practice. Mm. And then the last one is Gronkowski. Gronkowski really? was just man-child in practice, man. Mm. Like, people don't realize how hard that dude practices. Mm-hmm. Just the same, th- the same stuff he does to other defenses, he does that to his own times 10 because there's no rest. Mm. He just clubs them, throws them out the way, catches everything, mm. super competitive. But then I thought about him like, it's bullshit that three out of five of them are on the same team, <laughs> which is a good segue into the – Sunday night game last night where it was kind of a shootout between the Chiefs and the Patriots. And the young guys in Kansas City held their own. But in the end, it was the GOAT, another game-winning drive. I think it was the 42nd of his career. Uh, but they won 43-40. to 40. Did you catch any of that game, Joe, or were you knee-deep in the 73 Kolsch? At that point, I was swimming in a small bathtub of gin and 73 Kolsch mixed together. <laughs> but I did watch some of that. Oh, uh, I enjoyed dry. it. I always love watching Sunday Night Football. I mean, it is the most watched TV show every single week. And there's a reason because at the end of the weekend, everybody just loves winding down <laughs> and watching Sunday Night Football. And when there's a game like the Patriots, which everybody loves to either hate or love on the Patriots, they're the Yankees of the NFL. And the Chiefs, who are sort of a darling of the NFL right now, right? Everybody loves Patrick Mahomes. Everybody loves all the young talent they have. It's a, that's a fun game to watch, right? And early on in the game, it was kind of a clunker because the Patriots were taking care of business. But then all of a sudden, Patrick Mahomes is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, man, I'm pretty good. I can figure this thing out. And then he starts playing like he has been the whole season and uh, it took a little magic from Tom Brady at the end to win. But I think here, here's my point. Isn't it amazing how no matter what happens in a game, if you give Tom Brady the ball at the end of the game with anything more than about five seconds, he's going to go <laughs> down and get whatever points he needs to win. Like we played right. there in 2000, it must've been 12 or 13. Actually, Josh Gordon was rolling at the time. I remember Josh Gordon caught a little slant, right? And backed up on our own 20 or 30 yard line against Aqib Tlaib and just ran past everybody and ran for like a 75 yard touchdown in that game. And we were up 15 points in this game with like, I'm going to say two minutes left. And Tom Brady went all the way down the field, scored a touchdown 
got the two-point conversion. <laughs> then they got the onside kick. Then of they course. drove down again and scored, kicked the extra point, and then I think we ended up losing in overtime, if I remember correctly. Either that or they just <laughs> beat us right there in regulation. Maybe Zerm remembers. Uh, it's probably one of the wounds he has, being a lifelong Cleveland sports fan. But that guy is just remarkable. I, I can't think of anybody in any sport that just gets exactly what he needs at the end to win every game if the ball's in his hand. Yeah, dude, that's exactly what happened last night. My favorite part about your take is you just generalizing Sunday night football. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I didn't watch the game. But I love Sunday oh, night football. Sunday. It's great. Every week, at the end of the week, you get football. Yeah. It's awesome. It's amazing. Yeah. Let me tell you, if if, if you're not being honored we're with a ring of honor ceremony, which doesn't exactly happen for everybody every weekend, you're no, going to be watching no. Sunday night football yeah, with a 73 Kolsch. And uh, maybe if you're Hawk, you have a Mountain Dew. Yeah, you got if you're if you're lucky enough to get a Mountain Dew. Yeah, no, man, it was a uh, Tyreek Hill, different dude. No one could even come close to touching him. It, he made the Patriots look like a high school football team. <laughs> he would catch it in the middle of the field. There would be like four guys between him and the end zone. He would just literally run around them as they all had the angle and beat the angle and down the sideline with ease. And that was exactly what happened at the end of the game. There was like two minutes left. Mahomes and the Chiefs get it. They throw in the first pass right to Tyreek Hill over the middle who had three touchdowns, 75-yard touchdown with like a little under two minutes or a little over two minutes left. And everyone in the room that I was watching was, was with was like, yep, that's too much time. Tom wins. It was tied. <laughs> he it was tied. taken a knee on like the 10. <laughs> yeah. It's like that was bad clock yeah. management by Andrew. I'm like, management. what are they supposed to do there? They scored a 75-yard touchdown. <laughs> but Mahomes, he, he, he held his own though, man. I think that's what everybody wanted to see. He's the real deal. I know we keep saying that week in and week out, but in that environment in New England, Sunday night football against the greatest of all time, that's an easy environment to shit the bed, and he did not do that. So, pass off to him. Patriots are still rolling, and that's where we are with it. Question. Oh, I had something to say. Hang on. Let me <laughs> go ahead. I forgot. My bad. My bad, drunk joke. I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> I it was it was a great point. I'm sure <laughs> it was. Oh, amazing here we go you ready for this go ahead here we go here's here's the hot take of the day so after watching Tyreek Hill against the Patriots does mm -hmm. that elevate the level of what Jalen Ramsey did when he was covering Tyreek Hill the other week because that was our conversation mm -hmm. was that was got the best of each other was it Tyreek Hill was it Jalen Ramsey and all of a sudden now we get a little more perspective on how great Tyreek Hill is are we all of a sudden saying, wow, Jalen Ramsey's even better than we thought? Jalen Ramsey is the best corner in the NFL. Wow. To me. Hmm. So that doesn't make him any better. He did actually line up. I was like really wrong when I said he barely lined up against him. They lined up like 44 snaps against each other. So that's a pass load for a receiver. <laughs> it's a that's lot. Basically the whole game. That's like wow. more plays than I've played in any of my games in my career. <laughs> ESPN just but fired you as their analyst. <laughs> Well, they don't pay me to be factual in this show. So <laughs> this is just I can just make shit up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're more this, we're more like actors than analysts on here. <laughs> but uh yeah, no, Jalen is he, he's legit, which is another good segue. Joe, you're drunk, but you are on I mean, it this morning. I'm on point. I'm not gonna Jaguar. lie. I'm still on the high of my ring of honor. Yo, you are in the you're in the Tomahawk ring of honor for sure. <laughs> you're, you're already boy. in. We're not we, we don't gotta wait till the Hall of <laughs> the Hall of Fame ceremony. Um the Jaguars got Stomped out. They got curb stomped by the Dallas Cowboys. They lost by 33 points yesterday 
and they look terrible. Is the Jaguars' window closing? Is it over for them? Well, here's, here's a good story for you. Okay, ready? Blake Bortles went through for 149, season low, mm. which is in this climate of football, throwing for 149 is like it, 10 years ago, it's like throwing for 47 yards. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, after, when you first just after we talked about how Blake Bortles is a franchise quarterback when he had like 400 yards the other week. You talked about that. I never Earth said that. You said that. Starts playing like the Blake Bortles we've all know, come to know and love from <laughs> 2010. But here, here's, my, here's my interesting story for the day. So I was with some guys uh, Saturday night that are really good friends with a lot of big important people in Dallas and so we had dinner and we were having drinks and we started talking about Jason Garrett and and this person was like hey this might be Jason Garrett's last game as a coach he's like I've been hearing some things and he's potentially going to get fired if they don't have a good game and wow the the Cowboys in that locker room must really like Jason Garrett and they must have heard that rumor because they came out firing, and all, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they have offense. They, they've got, you know, 200-plus yards running. They've got 183 pass yards, which is still pretty pitiful for a starting quarterback. But you get 40 points. So, I don't know what's going on, and I don't know what Dallas team is going to show up from week to week. I don't know what Jacksonville team is going to show up because this is kind of two clunkers in a row for them. And I'm starting to wonder if – Maybe the Jaguars were, were pretenders all last year in the beginning of this year. And the funny thing is, right when in my head I was ready to accept the fact that the Jaguars were actually good, they go and suck ass really bad <laughs> two weeks in a row. It was terrible, man. Somebody had a tweet that said it had a picture of Jalen Ramsey, and it said he was like super disappointed on the sideline from the game. And it said, the face you make when you, <laughs> when you dogged every quarterback in the league and then realize they're all better than Blake Wardles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Blake. Oh, Blake. So, poor Blake. But let's talk but about is. another guy that's poor quarterback, which he's a friend of the Tomahawk show. He's a big fan. He's one of Andrew Hawkins' <laughs> biggest followers on social media. Nathan Peterman comes and <laughs> forehead again in that game for Buffalo. Why don't you tell us what happened here? Oh, my favorite thing in sports. So Nathan Peterman, who – I think I, I crunched the numbers a while ago, but his in his two starts, he had like seven interceptions. I think he had like a total of like 70 yards passing, a negative quarterback rating or something crazy. Well, this week, Josh Allen goes in. They're playing the Houston Texans. Josh Allen gets hurt. He goes down. So enter Nathan Peterman. It's redemption time. The stage is set. No one is expecting him to come out and ball. And he actually comes out. I think he plays well. He might have thrown for two touchdowns. No. Long story short. No. 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 Nathan. He threw for one touchdown. Ready. Nathan Peterman's stats for the game were 12 of, or 6 of 12, 61 yards, a TD, and two picks. Okay. So he did throw for one touchdown. He threw for a touchdown. It was like, oh, Nathan Peterman throws his first touchdown. He's ready to go. So into the game, he had already thrown a pick. It was 13-13, minute and 50 left fourth quarter bills have the ball they're driving nathan peterman has the eye of the tiger he gets under center checks the defense we got a too high look he steps back three-step drop goes to the wide side of the field to a squatting jonathan joseph who is a corner for the texans and has a history of having terrible hands jonathan joseph is one of those corners that if he could catch 
people would be talking about him for the Hall of Fame because he has dropped that many interceptions. <laughs> so he wails one to the field of a hitch pass to Kelvin Benjamin, who has another funny story in pregame that we'll get to in a minute. Long story short, right into the, the belly of Jonathan Joseph, Peterman throws a pick six for the Houston Texans to win the game. I hosted Sports Center on Snap last night, and I said that Nathan Peterman threw his first game-winning touchdown pass. Oh, oh my God. Problem was the wrong team. Oh. Pick six. <laughs> Houston wins 20-13. to 13. Uh, I feel so bad for this guy. I'm going I'm to just give you my, like, sad. Please give it to me. Yes. Really quick. And it's not a story, but I just feel so bad for him because every time he's been in the game in his NFL career, and by all accounts, this guy – is doing the right things. He's not like a jag off like Johnny was where he kind of squandered an opportunity, but this guy's putting everything he has into his game and his craft. And I'm sure he's got lots of family members at home that are supporting mm. him and that want to see him do so well and that are his biggest fans. But every time he's come in in his NFL career, <laughs> he has looked absolutely horrible. And you just feel for a guy like that that just he can't make a break for himself. And he just continues to get opportunities to flip the script and to change the storyline and to have this great success story. And he just can't do it because he does stuff like that. And for one day, I would love to see him get a redemption, turn it around and be like a pro bowler. But I don't see that happening. That every time he's on the field, he is bad. <laughs> Did you guys see this quote from him after the game? It might be the saddest, no. the saddest thing. No. So <laughs> I would love to hear it. He like it's like he got broken. So this was Peterman after the game. He said, "Quote, <laughs> why are you laughing?" Why? I mean, I, like I feel so bad, but it's like this sounds like to. somebody who it's like their seventieth birthday and they're retiring from like a long career of work. That's what this quote sounds like. <laughs> At the end of the day, I know where my true identity lies in Christ, being a child of God, basically not finding my identity in football, just trying to find it in who I really am. I love this oh, game and put everything I have into this game, but I can't let it define me. Is that not the saddest thing you've ever heard in your whole life? That's so sad. Like, he's falling back is, uh, on his faith as if right yeah. now he's, he's dealing with like a tragic death in his family. Yes. Yeah. Like, well, like the only thing I have left is, is my religion, and that's the most important thing. And so I just you know, have to grip like, to that in a time of tragedy. <laughs> like, I mean, poor, I – I think it was probably like one of those, you know what? This probably isn't going to last very long. You yeah. know, like I, you think, it was like the third strike. <laughs> yeah. Do you think th that was the moment where he was looking at those cameras? He's like, I realized my career is over. Is that yeah. why he was reflecting kind of on who he probably was he in? probably at that? I feel like at that moment, he was probably like, you know what? I'm trying to shove a square peg into yeah. a round hole. Like this, he's he might go on to be the freaking president. And this might be football might be the thing that was like, hey, man, this isn't for you. You're like wasting your time. Mm -hmm. It's like you, Joe, when you were trying to be a basketball player, yeah. you know, and your, <laughs> and your knees out. kept hitting together in the post. <laughs> and it was your knees telling you, like, this isn't for you, man. Mm -hmm. You know, you should be playing football. Yeah. This is this is what it is for Nathan. Peterman. And I don't mind Nathan Peterman. And I was like really tough on him. Um, you were and it's not because I'm a mean guy. You're mean. I do make fun of people. I make fun of myself, and I love job. myself. So that means no one else is off limits. That's my philosophy. But also, in football, my entire life, I clung to the notion, whether it was a fallacy or not, but I clung to the notion that if I worked my ass off, no matter what anybody said, what I couldn't do, what they said was not possible, what I wasn't big enough for, I clung to the fact that if I got the opportunity and I proved that I could do it, I would be rewarded 
for all of my hard work and all the hard shit that I went through. So I'm not going to lie, regardless if he's a great guy or not, it does irk me when I see someone who time after time proves that they, I don't want to say aren't worthy, but aren't good enough and yet still get the opportunities because I know from experience that there are guys out there who are better than that, who should get the opportunity, who should be out there in place of someone who has not done great, not just not done great, possibly played the worst in NFL history and continues to be on that payroll. That does, it doesn't sit well with me. I don't like when people who have the talent don't get the opportunity and they should, and they proved it. And I don't like when people who do have the opportunity and aren't good continue to keep the opportunity. So what do you think the Bills were doing when they got rid of A.J. McCarron? I don't know. I don't know, but, like, somebody should be on the hook for that. That is a bad decision. Like, up and down, bad decision. Do you think they're tanking? I mean, is that was that the purpose of the season? Was that to try to get another high draft pick because they didn't think their roster was good enough to make the playoffs? I mean, was that a Browns situation where – you know, I mean, they they were tanking. worried that AJ McCarron was going to get him. You know, that six wins if he was in there, and uh, that six doesn't do you anything for you in the NFL. It's like the number in, in craps you don't want. Six just well, gets you if, a bat, a, a worse draft pick, but still not the playoffs. If they wanted to be really bad, they would have kept Nathan Peterman in. If they wanted to win six wins, they're going to play Josh Allen. If they wanted to win six games, they could have kept A.J. McCarron. If they wanted to win six games, they should have kept Tyrod Taylor. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you think that, you know? do you think that they were worried about uh, the development of Josh Allen with A.J. McCarron? I, I don't know A.J., but do you think him being behind Josh would have been too competitive and it wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked? Maybe. That is very that is that's a fair being point. That AJ I mean, I don't has know. thinks I'm sure that he deserves to be a starting quarterback. Yeah, AJ's a competitive dude. AJ's a competitive he dude. He got drafted to help groom a young quarterback. When he got drafted to the Bengals. I met him for the first time, in which like we had a movie premiere together with like Gary Owen, and that was like the first thing he said to me. He was like, "Yo, I'm coming here to start." <laughs> I was like, "Whoa, relax." Andy Dalton buddy. got like a hundred million dollar deal. I don't think they're benching him. <laughs> yeah, they were like four years, four playoff appearances. He just got a hundred million. He was like, "Yo, this is my spot." I'm like, "Okay, I like where your head is at, but let's take a a deep breath yeah. here." I, I, so yeah, yeah. I, I could see that. Yeah, and Nathan Peterman doesn't seem very competitive. Oh, that's so mean. Just, I'm just saying uh, he could I'm be very saying. competitive. We just don't know. He just hasn't proven it yet. But let's pivot. All right, so the Bills, they squandered their opportunity to beat the uh, hapless Texans. Let's talk yep. about the Texans. What is going on over there? Because even though they beat the Bills, they did it in uh, unceremonious fashion, and they got Deshaun Watson murdered again. Seven more sacks coming into the game already banged up. Are yeah. we blaming right now Deshaun Watson's lack of improvement, mm. lack of – ability to protect himself right now on their scheme on their crappy offensive line or on Deshaun Watson I don't know man it's tough because if you look at the numbers now his numbers versus the Bills weren't great but they won the football game yeah, he's still That's, winning some games I mean they're three and three he's winning some games and th here's the stat line for his passing yards 375 375 385 310 and then the opening game was against the Patriots. He went 176 and 50% completion. But his last four passer ratings, 98.2, 102.8, 98.4, 107.6. This game in the first game, 
were 61 and 62. So those weren't good games for the season. He's at 90.8. So, I mean, I think he's kind of like everyone's kind of saying, oh, he's not where he was last year. The biggest difference from now and last year is that he's not throwing as many touchdowns, which is a big difference. I get that. Yeah, that might be a little but, important. But he's not playing terrible. No, you know, no. I mean, it's like Roethlisberger is another guy who we, on the outside, it's like, oh, he's struggling. But if you look at his numbers, they're actually not bad. You know, like Eli Manning's numbers are bad and he's playing bad. Yeah. Like that's, I'm going to tell you, you know, I'm going to tell you why though, the numbers are looking the way they are because many of those games, they were behind, you know? So I think a lot of times you're, you're getting easy yards mm-hmm. uh, against a soft defense, right? Cause they're kind of playing the prevent type stuff. Now they won yeah. against Dallas. He had 375. They won against Indy. He had 375, um, both overtime games. But he loses against the Giants, and he has 385. You know, being a member of a lot of losses throughout my career, a lot of times our <laughs> quarterbacks would get, you know, 250, 300 yards passing because by the fourth quarter, those defenses are just playing real soft. They're letting you go up and down the field with those 15 to 20-yard outs and those easy completions because you're, you're, you're completing the ball and they're tackling you in bounds if it's a, something over the middle. They're giving you all that stuff. And so it's easy mm-hmm. to rack up an extra couple hundred yards as a quarterback, whereas if it's if it's a situation where you're winning or it's really a close game, you're not getting as many of those uh, easy free completions. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I still don't feel bad about Deshaun Watson. Like I don't look at him and say, "Oh man, it was like a fluke his first year." Mm-hmm. I think he's going to come like finish the year strong, and then next year he's going to be back and back to his normal self. You know, it's always takes a kind of a year to get over that knee injury and like all the way be be back to yourself now he's taking way too many hits and that's my summer that's back summer self-inflicted question some are you're right who it are is, we blaming yeah it's probably a mix i like you said i feel like bill o'brien probably isn't running the offense that's uh conducive for success to uh deshaun watson he has a very specific skill set that you have to be able to play call around mm-hmm. and to, the reality is most play callers they don't have offenses that go around that there's very few there's guys like harbaugh's offense was Taylor for a guy like that. It, there's just not been many offensive quarters don't grow up thinking, man, I can't wait to have a running quarterback so I can put this offense that I've been thinking about my entire life with RPOs and zone reads and getting him outside the pocket. Like, no, they want to drop the quarterback back and have him throw for 600 yards and everybody praise them how they're this offensive guru that dices people up. So that being said, again, the skill set that Deshaun Watson has, I think he's a very, very good quarterback but he has to find the, the right offensive coordinator that can scheme it to play to his strengths. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with anything you just said. I'm only going to cap it with this. Deshaun Watson will not make through the season unless they change something, unless they mm. figure out how to protect him better or he's somehow throwing some easier, quicker completion routes or they tailor the offense a little bit differently. But my man can't be getting sacked seven times every single week and think he's going to survive yeah. the season. He's already proven he's not super durable because of how many hits he does take just from normal course of his quarterbacking, the way he escapes the pocket, the way he can run, the way he takes those hits down the field. That That's not sustainable at the NFL level. I mean, even in college, you're going to take those hits five, six weeks, and, and you're going to get banged up, and you're going to be out. And We saw it last yep. year, and he won't be able to reach that potential unless he's able to minimize some of these hits. 
Right. All right, let's 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 jump into quickly um another Canadian Music Awards nominee worthy edition of Am I Trippin'? Mm-hmm. We're just gonna hit two points. I'm gonna start off with this one, Joe. Am I trippin' or is Todd Gurley better than Adrian Peterson in his prime? Now Todd Gurley rushed for 208 yards yesterday, which I think was a career high against the Denver Broncos in the snow. Dude's playing on another level. Wow, defenses are even keying on him. And it does help that he has so many weapons on the outside. But who would you take, Todd Gurley or Adrian Peterson in his prime? I'm taking Todd Gurley, and this is the reason why. Because Todd Gurley is so much of a weapon catching the football right now. And Adrian Peterson never had very good hands, and he was never much of a weapon catching Mm -hmm. the football and running with it after the catch. And in that offense, they're going to get a lot of completions to the running back where he's an opportunity to run and make some yards. And so I think, especially in that offense in L.A., Todd Gurley is a much better fit, and I, I would much rather have him in that situation. I like that. All right, another question. Am I tripping, or is the John Gruden experiment over before it began <laughs> in Oakland? The Raiders are 1-5. They got mollywopped by the Seahawks in London. Reports came out that they're shopping Amari Cooper. Uh, Derek, Cry, Derek, Carr, Derek Cry is actually a good name for it, but Derek yeah. Carr was crying after he took a Ooh. sack yesterday. Things are like falling apart quickly in Oakland. My my take before you jump in here is that John Gruden is going to blow it up before it goes any further to to basically make it seem like, oh, they never had the players. This was the plan all along just to blow it up and start over because things are going catastrophically wrong. And the dude is under a 10 year contract. Yeah, you actually took the words right out of my mouth. It's like it's like we've been co-hosting this podcast together (laughs) for years because that's exactly what I was thinking. Like John Gruden has reached the point right now where around the league. People are thinking he's got way too much talent to be looking the way that they look right now. And he's thinking, shit, if if I just keep things the way they are with this roster and I end up the season, you know, three and thirteen or like two and fourteen, like how do I come back from that? Because that's just a direct reflection of my coaching. Because Derek Carr was one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL a couple of years ago. He was leading the MVP race. They were like the best team in the AFC just a couple years ago when Jack Del Rio was there, I was actually really surprised they got rid of Jack Del Rio because I thought he did a great job. And I thought, he, you know, they had the, the blip last year. But to me, I was like, man, the Raiders, they still got a good offensive line. They can run the ball. They got beast mode. They got Derek Carr. They've got a really good defense with one of the best defensive players in the league, the best outside pass rusher in Cleo Mack. And what does John Gruden do? He comes in and he gets rid of Khalil back. And then everybody else on that team is suckier than they were the, the year before. So that's a direct reflection of the job he's doing as a coach. And in order to save that, that reputation and that job, because they can't fire him. He's there for 10 years. I think right. I, I heard rumors he has equity in the team. And I'm not sure if that's actually true or not. But. Either way, they owe him a lot of money if they fire him. So there's no way they can fire him for like at least five to seven more years. They got to do something to change the storyline over there from, hey, this is a team that's on the rise that's potentially going to make the playoffs to we're in a huge three-year rebuilding mode and we're going to reboot once we get to Las Vegas and then we're going to try to make a run. So I see that roster being drastically different after the the trade deadline passes because like you mentioned i think they're going to get rid of Mari cooper there's a lot of guys in that team i think that are in sort of that middle years either right before their contract is is up 
or mm-hmm. kind of like, uh, you know, in their veteran contract. And I think they're going to get rid of him because John Gruden needs to make this into a rebuild that he's taken over instead of they've got a lot of good players and he can take them to the playoffs. You know what? Like, this is what being in the media does for you. The ability to <laughs> basically create folklore and legend <laughs> around yourself, Ooh. right? Ooh. This is what people in the media do. People, players, coaches, or whatever, they get into the media and then they start to shape the story, shape history Mm. in their favor, with the exception of us, who are probably the most self-deprecating media members in all of mankind. We're so humble. We're (laughs) self-deprecating. We actually minimize the legendary things that we've done in football between me and you. I Mm. mean, countless Pro Bowls, countless Mm -hmm. All-Pros. We've been to the playoffs three times between us. Mm -hmm. Just so many accolades. But we still are humble about it where everybody else creates folklore. That's what John Gruden did. When he signed that 10-year guaranteed contract with the Raiders, the head coach, I thought it was the most ridiculous thing that I've seen in sports because I felt like, you know what, as a coach, to be quite honest, he wasn't all that good. Mm. But being in the booth for as long as he was, he was able to make people feel like he was this coaching legend and all these things. When you look at coaching legends, they all have a quarterback they can point to and say, man, that was a great coach, and he had this great quarterback that he played with, for the most part, 90% of them. Belichick, uh, Bill Walsh, Lombardi, I mean, you name it, great coaches have great quarterbacks they've committed to. And I said this from the beginning, John Gruden does not commit to quarterbacks. He doesn't commit to players. He keeps the it open-ended. Even the one Super Bowl he won, that was with Tom, Tony Dungy's players. Tony Dungy put that team together. Yes, he was able to help put, you know, seal the deal, but I just felt like it was a lot of hoopla around him, man. And I think the Raiders are seeing that now. Not to mention, the game has changed. It's not the same as it was 15, 10 years ago. You know, and I think he's seeing that. You can't dink and dunk your way down the field and think you're going to be able to compete in this, this kind of climate. Quarterbacks who throw for 250, we look at them with a stink face. We say, ugh. 250, that was a tough day for you. Quarter, Blake Bortles throws for 480, and we don't even bat an eye. Blake Bortles. Blake Bortles wouldn't have started on my high school football team. I'm kidding. He would have started on my high school <laughs> But you get what I'm saying. All right, guys. We've hit on a lot today. Let's very quickly, it's our no huddle segment, but this is what stood out to me the most. Kirk Cousins cracks me up. So before the games, these past couple weeks, the cameras have caught him giving these incredible, like, goosebump inducing speeches that I didn't even know Kirk Cousins had in him. He's roasting <laughs> Josh Rosen about being a rookie quarterback and he's going to get destroyed. And I was like, Kirk, who are you? And then he, they score a touchdown and Kirk morphs back into like the most dad dad of all time. He's doing this like awkward dance and he's having a blast. So my question for you guys is, have you watched these pregame speeches? Are they some of the best? Like, have you had a teammate that's given a better pregame speech than that? And then I need some commentary. I need a judgment, yay or nay, on Kirk Cousins and these touchdown dances. All right. I'm going to say this first. You know what I love about success in life is typically the more success somebody has, the more they're willing to open up and show us who they really are. And and we kind of get to peek behind the curtain a little bit more. And so a guy like Kirk Cousins, right? Everybody kind of thinks he's just like a nerdy uh, Harry Potter-loving geek that it happens to be a good <laughs> football player and forever and ever is just kind of this like real quiet person. 
and now he's getting a little bit more success. He's got that big contract now, and they're playing a little bit better in Minnesota. And he's starting to show who that personality really is because not afraid of it anymore. He's not afraid of somebody finding out that he's real quirky and very strange. And he's willing to show everybody who he is. And I love that about people because I love the quirkier, the better. The, the stranger, the odder, the more life is interesting. The, these are the type of people that add color to my life. When I listen to a guy like Kirk Cousins just act like a total fool and say the most foolish things in that pregame huddle where 99% of those guys are looking at him going, what the hell are you talking about? And if anything, they're laughing. They're not getting pumped up and amped like they're going to go to war. They're, they're laughing like they're in some type of stand-up comedy night because this <laughs> cannot be real life what they're watching. I love the I love watching the development of people not giving a shit. It happens in every walk of oh, life. Man. And I mean, just think about when you're a kid and your aunt or your uncle bosses you around, bosses you around. And then you get to a point where you're like a grown-up and there's Thanksgiving and the family's over and your uncle says, what the hell are you doing in here? Take your shoes off. And at this point, you're, you're home from college and you've been lifting a lot of weights and you're like, you know what? I don't know who the hell he thinks he's talking to because I'll put him in the headlock. What do you mean? What am I doing here? What are you doing here? Get out. It's my house. My mom's. What do you want to do? Do something. Exactly. And you get to that point or your aunt who is like nagging you all the time and eventually you just have, you, you're fed up. You're like, yo, I don't care if you know who I am anymore. Okay. I drink Coach 73 on the weekends, and I'm not going to sit here and let you talk to me that way. That's what I feel like we see in Kirk Cousins. Mm -hmm. You get to the point where it's like, yo, I don't care if they think that I'm, you know, some not some robot who just throws check downs and, and deep outs. This is who I am. I'm a dad, and I have dad dance moves, and I'm going to have fun with. I tell <laughs> these really corny pregame speeches, and people – People like to see that personality. Yeah. Like you have to get to a point where you're you're okay with people yeah. loving you or hating you. Yeah. Even Tebow is getting there. Tebow yeah. called out Alabama fans and said they're spending their daddy's money. And I'm like, Tebow? I loved it. That's, that's how you're going to drop that it? That was great. And again, I feel like we at the Tomahawk kind of pioneered that. We did. Because um, we don't, we haven't given a damn for a long time. Yeah, so. yeah the, the Kirk Cousins thing is great. My take on pregame speeches always are the guy that's giving the speech is usually the only one that's getting pumped up. Because you have to get yourself in that mindset to be able to scream and yell and run around the huddle like an idiot. And typically, everybody else in that huddle is like, all right, they're looking at their watch. If, if they had watches on, they'd be looking at their watch like, all right, what is this thing going to be over with? Because we got to go and actually like be productive and stretch my hamstrings so I don't pull them right before kickoff. But they got this <laughs> Neanderthals yelling at us, spitting in our face. Right. But the, the only guy that really gets much out of a pregame speech is the person giving it. The best... the the best technique is you need you need at least eight guys. You got to find eight speech givers before the season because I don't give a damn how great your speeches are. After two, yeah, oh yeah. they get old. Yeah, old. So if you're not mixing it up, I don't care how sweet they mm -hmm. are. Like I remember Ravens players telling me how they would roll their eyes when Ray Lewis would talk. Yeah. As you can imagine, it's like, okay, dude. Here we go we again. Get it. Here we go again. This is this go ahead and mark off. We're not getting these three minutes back, so <laughs> use it wisely behind his back. So, yeah, you got to make sure you have a mix. Natty Ice, what's up? I don't know if we've asked this on the show before, but I'm curious to know from your from your experiences, like who have been that stood out to you in your career, the best and worst pregame speeches? Best and worst. 
pregame speech. Like if someone comes to mind right away of like, oh, I remember this speech <laughs> or like, oh, this was the worst. There was one one speech because I, I remember it because I first got to Cleveland. It was new. I got this new contract. I was supposed to be a slot, easy money, playing on third downs. Gordon gets suspended. So now I'm like the number one. And I'm like, okay, I'm underpaid. Immediately, I'm like, you know what? I'm there. I have to do more than I'm being paid for. So it's a week one. So I got all this. I feel, I'm feeling all this fake pressure on myself to be great. And we had also signed Dante Whitner, who is from Cleveland, Cleveland native. And he took over the pregame speech that game. It was his first game back in the city. And he gives us this passionate speech. Mm. The entire thing was about him, <laughs> and, it was, and it took it took the edge off of all of us because I felt like we were all in the back. Like, what is he talking about? I, I, the one quote I remember him saying in the speech, and he says, "Everybody talking about Cleveland football. I am Cleveland football. <laughs> I am Cleveland." <laughs> and we were like, "What is?" What does this got to do with us? <laughs> what is he going to start talking about us? On. We're not from Cleveland. <laughs> we might have broke it down on uh, on Hitner. <laughs> Hitner <laughs> on three. And I'm like, wait a minute. I feel like he was talking to himself that whole time. But yeah, that's the speech that sticks out to me. So I'm going to answer Nat's question by saying <laughs> there's really no good or bad pregame speech. They just are. Because I think <laughs> maybe this is because I'm a lineman. As, as, as one of the positions on the field that has to think a lot and has a lot going on, it's like taking a, a calculus seven test when you go out there on Sundays as an offensive lineman. I've got at least 20 pages of notes from the week single space, both sides of the paper. I've got at least 50 note cards of everything from what my technique is going to be, what my assignment's going to be, how the plays affect me, blitz pickups, what changes when they put a different pass rusher in there. I mean, I've got basically the game all on my note cards and my notes. And so before a game, I'm studying these things like I'm studying for the SATs. And so the last thing I want is somebody to distract me from the thoughts that are going through my head that are going to help me win a football game by yelling about how they are Cleveland. <laughs> and so there is no good or bad. They just exist. And I, I will say the three most passionate that I've ever been around, which these three guys were super passionate about their pregame speeches. And I will say that there were certain guys that would get amped up and mostly defensive guys because I always said mm -hmm. defensive guys don't have to think. They're just reacting. And so if they're a little bit more amped up, it's good. As an offensive player, as Hawk knows, we have to play under control. We've got a lot to think about. So we can't be amped up. we got to be a controlled, smooth excitement. You can't be too yeah. high. Uh, but you got to have some energy. So Demario Davis, he was always super passionate yes. and long. Christian Kirksey. <laughs> he took Demario told four speeches a week. It wasn't just a game day. He would tell it in the middle of a special teams meeting, right before the team meeting, at lunch. Like oh, it yeah. was like he was four a week. Oh, yeah. And uh Christian Kirksey always gave super passionate long speeches. Uh and then Dante Whitner. Those three guys were easily the most <laughs> passionate speech givers, but Actually, the most motivating speech that I was ever around was from a coach, and it was from Rec uh, Rob Ryan. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, he was a defensive coordinator with Eric Mangini, and Eric was not good at speeches at all. He hated them. He was bad at them. Um, and so he would have, like, the other coaches give the Saturday night end of team meeting speech, which is, like, usually – it's not always a pump-up speech, but there's usually – some message that the head coach will give you Saturday night before you break up, before you go to your rooms and sleep it out for the night. 
And Rob Ryan gave us a speech one time that was fantastic. The way he pumped all of us up and he made it an us versus them. He, it was like a good general. I felt like general uh, MacArthur was in that room, like firing up the troops and getting us ready for battle. And that was about the only speech I think in my entire life that has actually amped me up to go play football. <laughs> the only time I was amped up by somebody else, well, not the only time, cause I've been amped up in speeches. I don't want to say actually I'm a robot, but there was always like a specific time that I knew I would amp myself up. It was a part of my routine. I'm, I'm, very much a creature of habit. It was during the national anthem. I would have this text message my brother sent me, and I would think about everything I had been through, and I would cry before every single game. Every NFL game I've ever had, you know just, Joe, literally tears mm-hmm. down my face every game. But in the pre, pre-before, and I'm like, one game, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get amped up this game. And Carlos Dansby, who was very particular in his routine as well, he was like, yo, man, you got to do this spark. And I'm like, what's spark? He's like, man, you got to take it, man. This thing had your juice, baby. This is, I'm telling you, how this thing, this thing with your juice. Huh? And I'm like, all right, well, people were doing this is like after a couple of weeks and everybody's taking it. I'm like, all right, whatever. Pour me up a cup, put the powder in, take the spark. And this is why players shouldn't get amped up. So I take the spark and I start getting tingly, right? My body starts tingling, my fingers. And I'm like, oh, man, baby, I'm, I am juice. Let's go. So we get out there, we get the pregame, and I'm like, yo, I'm, I am ready to play. Like, this is the most, this stuff is great. Man, I've been missing out. We get in the game. I want to say that game, I batted down every single pass that was thrown my way because I couldn't <laughs> control my hands. They were just shaking, and I was so amped up. The ball would come, and I would just be over-aggressive. Like, ah! and I would spike the football to the ground. I had, like, four drops, no catches, uh. and I'm like, Dansby, it was like first the Steelers. We ended up winning actually by like 30 points, so it didn't matter. But I'm like, Dansby, if you ever come to me with the suggestion again, I'm gonna kick you square in the nuts. Because you're about to get me cut and, and ruin my career. Did you ever eat any of his lobster mashed potatoes? His so, lobster mash was fire. This is a real quick story. So Dansby going into like his second year in Cleveland, I think it was, he did this blood test in the offseason in Miami. And this person allegedly took your blood and put every type of food known to man against your blood. And then it saw the reaction your blood made if it gave like any type of allergy reaction or basically it was trying to figure out what foods your body digests the best. And this lady came back and said the only like protein carbohydrate combination that Carlos could handle the best was lobster mashed potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) So he so ate, this, he man, mash. this man, he made, he ate the same thing every day, every meal. I'm not talking every, every day. Single I'm meal. talking breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He ate lobster mashed potatoes for the entire it was like, season. It was like three things. Every single meal was the exact same. <clears throat> and every single breakfast he would come in there because he had a chef and they would make it in like these glass, like meatloaf containers and he'd bring it in he'd put it right in the microwave heat it up for like four minutes and eat his lobster mashed potatoes and that was just his routine <laughs> for every single meal the entire yeah. season and he swore by it that it turned him into superman and like the other <laughs> killing him and this stuff was just turning him into like the all pro that he he knew he could have been what else i just wanted to say last thing we're gonna get to our reddit questions here with nat um but hawk it makes me laugh because you said like once a guy gives like two three speeches it's like all right it just makes me think of when Jameis went to the eat the w speech it was like james oh, definitely <laughs> ran out of things to say maybe somebody else should have yeah. done that one yeah. yeah eat the w you're literally sucking on your own fingers yeah, that was a, 
unusual. Three seconds out from the game. We're going to get our ass kicked. And then so, I, all right. I'm going to put a little exclamation point on that with this last sentence that I think as a professional, the guys that survive in the NFL are the guys that are self-motivated and that find a routine to get themselves yep. amped up before a game and don't wait for somebody else to do it. End of story. Zerm, couldn't up. agree more. All right, Nat, let's, uh, I know we have some questions from our Reddit page. And uh, again, uh, hit us up on our Reddit page and also tweet us uh, on Twitter using the hashtag uh, Tomahawk. So Nat, what do we have question-wise from Reddit today? All right. So the first question we have is from Reddit user Jay Beckney2. Peyton Hillis, what happened, Joe? Was it coaching, play calling, or was he just not that good? Why did the albino rhino have to go? <laughs> okay, that's a long answer, but I'll try to keep it short. So Peyton was very fast for being a big guy. I mean, he was like 260 playing running back. He was basically a fullback playing running back. He was like Mike Allstott, only bigger. Um, he was hard to tackle because he could just run downhill. And so if he got hit, at the line of scrimmage, he's going to fall forward for three yards because he didn't have any cuts. He was not quick. He was so big. He's not going to avoid anybody or he's not going to bounce anything outside. And so defenses started understanding that he was going to get the ball and he was going to basically cut behind the guard and the center and then just burrow his head for three or four <laughs> yards. And that's all he did. Uh, he had good hands. He was good at the, what he did. And he was kind of a product of the offensive line and the fact that uh, he had a good offensive line opening some small holes up in front of him, and he was able to kind of burrow forward for three or four yards. And so I think the Browns offered him a pretty solid contract. I'm going to say like four years, $20 million for kind of who he was. They, they felt that he was good enough at getting that four yards. He was never going to be a guy that was going to bust out a 50-yard gain or, you know, have a bunch of runs in his scheme but they felt that because he could catch the football out of the backfield and he can kind of get that three to four yards pretty consistently because of just he was a rhino up there in the middle they felt that they could use him and he could be part of uh, the offense for you know four or five years and and, and then they were going to get maybe a scat back like a duke johnson type where you could put him back there and they could be kind of you know your thunder and lightning well peyton didn't understand his own uh, shortcomings that he was not Barry Sanders and all he could do was basically cut back to the inside zone play and burrow forward for four yards and so he thought he was supposed to be paid like the highest paid running back in the NFL he wanted to be paid like he was Adrian Peterson breaking 70 yard runs and all sorts of tackles and had all these moves in his Madden playbook which he didn't and so it became a really ugly contract situation even though Peyton had a lot of friends on the team that were telling him like hey man this is kind of who you are this is a good contract you should take it be part of us building something special here in Cleveland you know it's not the highest paid running back contract in history but being the white rhino you're going to be really marketable you're on the cover <laughs> of Madden you have an opportunity to make a ton of money if you'll make more money off the field it. than on oh absolutely and he had his brother as the at the time kind of a, a advising him as his agent and just giving him all sorts of bad advice. Um, yeah. And and then he became kind of a turd in the locker room. He famously sat out because he had a sore throat in that one game in the middle of his contract issue. Ooh. He had all sorts of fake hamstring pulls. And, he you know, he was basically using the Le'Veon Bell playbook 
that Le'Veon Bell should be using right now instead of right. giving up <laughs> million, Yeah, instead of giving up a million dollars a game to prove your point, just show up and have a sore throat like Peyton did or fake yeah. hamstring injury. And even though everyone's going to hate you, they already hate you right now for skipping the games. So you might as well have people hate you and make a million bucks a week. So. Uh, but basically that's what happened and sort of he lost all of his allies in the locker room and then when he did finally come back he realized that maybe he wasn't as good as he thought he was and he defenses just figured out okay he can't run outside the tackles and so we're just gonna load up the box every time he gets in there yeah there you go there you go Peyton Hillis, 30 Peyton 30. Hillis saga <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna show my future children that Madden cover with Peyton Hillis on it in like 20 years and they're gonna be like who yeah is exactly. this? And I'm like I don't even know I don't know who this is. they he definitely changed the way Madden picked their covers because I think that was the last time they left it up to fan vote yeah they're like screw this we can't be having white running backs with 900 yards rushing on the cover of Madden <laughs> what else we got net all right, the next question comes from Reddit user The Milkman. What are the weirdest coaching drills that you had to do? Wow, weirdest coaching drills. This is a good a good uh topic because I feel like as time goes on, goes on coaching drills get dumber and dumber. <laughs> so the dumbest coaching drill that I've ever had to do was when Eric Mangini was the head coach. We started every practice going over the bags like, you know, 1940s football where Every player would have to do like the high knees, the side shuffle, the <laughs> forward and back, like the sideways, and even offensive linemen. You know, so instead of working on being an offensive lineman, we're going over like linebacker bags at an absolutely furious rate with less than a foot between me and the person in front of me and a foot between the person behind me and me. So it was like a dominoes situation waiting to happen, and it, I despised it. There was a couple of drills that were terrible. One was in college, we would do cut drills on the scout team. Now, <laughs> literally, it would, the scout team DBs would come over to the receivers, and every day we would just cut them. So they had to backpedal. We would run full speed, and we would cut them like as practice and cut blocking. And now that I'm on this side of it, I realized, like, yo, that was such an asshole drill. Like, literally, they would get yelled at if they moved out of the way. Hmm. Like, backpedal, he's going to take your knees out so he can get, like, the stupidest drill ever, and it's really messed up. The other dumb one is when I was in the league, and I won't name names because I love them, but we would do this drill when it was a bubble, a bubble screen drill. Now, for the bubble screen, now I'm 5'7", so you can imagine of my career 200-plus NFL catches, 200 college, whatever it is, probably half of those are bubble screens. This is like what I do. The bubble screen is literally the slot, just does a bow, like a banana pass, quarterback throws it, you get what you can get. Uh, it's it's almost like a run. It's like an extended run play, right? So we did this drill where this coach would make us step a certain way before we got started. Like, so imagine your inside foot is up, your your left foot is back, and you're on the left side of the field. You just have to kind of step backwards into a bucket and push off of that. And he was adamant that this made a difference. And we would get in arguments because I'm like, this does not do anything. You understand that I could do a pounce jump off two feet and it won't change what happens. Mm -hmm. You're going to throw me the ball. I'm going to catch it, and then I'm going to make moves. <laughs> the beginning, how you start, has nothing. We're not even running upfield. <laughs> we're just kind of just bowing. Like, so we would get into arguments because we would do this drill, and he would yell at you for not stepping a certain way. And it was just the most asinine thing. And I'm like, this is why we suck, because you don't know what you're talking about, because this does nothing. Like, we would have experts. I had analytics people. We had upstairs. And we're, obviously, we're good friends, so we would be just kind of be 
having that thing. But I would get so many opinions, and every time everyone would say, yes, this doesn't mean anything. Mm. And that was the dumbest drill in football I've ever done. And it was indicative of what our record was that year. Mm. So mm. you can imagine where that was at. Mm. But all right, next question. What do we got here? All right. So third and final question comes from Reddit user Bills Are Fun. What is the thing you miss the most about Cleveland? Are we are we are we talking the city of Cleveland or Cleveland the, the team? I would say the city of Cleveland. City of Cleveland. Um, being in LA now, I do miss like kind of the the small town feel Cleveland has. I'm a small town guy. I'm from Johnstown, Pennsylvania. We have a population of like twenty five thousand. The metro is like a, a little over a hundred k. So it's like it's a very very small community kind of base in Cleveland it like although nowhere near that small but comparative to LA it does have that community feel like where the neighborhood you live in your kids play and you know everyone kind of has a lot of like very similar you know values and upbringing and like there's just certain pleasantries and people are nice to each other (laughs) standard of community in LA you just don't have time for each other so you're just you don't have time so now I work between LA and New York and literally, I, I mean, sometimes I walk down the streets of New York just acting like a crazy person and no one even looks at me. Like, they don't care. Like, they're too busy yeah. to, give a, to give a damn. I could literally be throwing coffee in my own face yeah, and will. no one will even pay attention yeah. to me. So I miss the small town feel of Cleveland. I, I'm in Cleveland a ton, so it's hard for me to say there's anything I miss because I'm, I'm here all the time, uh, which is good because we, we love yeah. it here. And uh, there's a lot of things I love about Cleveland. And I would say... I'm going to, I'm going to rephrase the question and say the thing that I love the most about Cleveland, because I just enjoyed the great Fahrenheit restaurant on Saturday night and then Hyde Park in Crocker Park last night, which was incredible. (laughs) Um, I love the restaurant scene and this is the thing in Cleveland that gets the least attention, but I think it should be the big story in the city is there is so many talented chefs and outstanding restaurants in Cleveland that are fairly affordable it's one of the most underrated Epicurean food scenes in the entire country by far. Epicurean. Uh, I, I like think it. the reason that, okay, I know the reason that there's so many good restaurants and so many good chefs in Cleveland is because real estate prices in Cleveland are really cheap. So if you want to open a restaurant, as long as you fill up Friday and Saturday night, you can pay the bills. Whereas if you're opening up a restaurant in Chicago or New York or LA, if you don't have a full restaurant every single night of the week, you're going to go out of business because you can't pay your bills. So it's easy for a young chef who's got great ideas to start up and then not have the pressure of getting full every night. So that's why we've seen guys like Michael Simon and Jonathan Sawyer and Rocco Whalen and all these long line of uh, really talented chefs that have started in Cleveland and opened up restaurants subsequently all over the country to great success is because they were able to cut their teeth in Cleveland in an environment where there's less pressure to become a chef. So I love the restaurants in Cleveland. Yeah. My kids tell me every single day that they miss Cleveland. Not, not You're exaggeration. You're an asshole for taking them from this beautiful city. Yeah. No, I, I <laughs> you, you, are you talking about tugging at your heart? My son every day says, I miss Cleveland. Dad. <laughs> I miss Carmen. Carmen was uh, his, his, buddy. his buddy that lived with him in the, in the neighborhood. Every day he says he misses Cleveland. We, I'm like, I know, we buddy. We find some time when Team Tomahawk can all come out here and uh, do like a two-day f- blowout in Cleveland. I love it, man. <laughs> Zerm, it done. 
Yeah, Zerm can can host us as at his mom's house, and we'll just all. Yes. <laughs> It'll be amazing. Yep. It's gonna uh, be can't an wait. Event. Also, from our fast food poll that we did last time, I got so much hate for not including Swenson's, but I don't think people realize that I have literally never set foot in <laughs> Ohio, so I have no idea what that is. Swenson's or, is on the okay. We got to take you to Swenson's. Yeah, we'll take Matt to Swenson's for sure. Yeah, be the that first has stop. to happen. <laughs> Well, that does it for this episode of Tomahawk. Uh, thank you all for listening. Like usual, man, hit us up on every social media at Tomahawk Show. Use the hashtag Tomahawk to join the conversation. We got a guest for Thursday, one of the best receivers. No, scratch that. The best receiver in NFL history. We'll tell you that later in the week. Make sure you're joining our DraftKings League. We'll let you know the results on Thursday as well. Subscribe. Rate us five stars. Joe, any final thoughts? Yeah, my final thoughts. I'm, I'm very um... – thoughtful and reflective today based on the ring of honor ceremony that I was able to be a part of this weekend in Cleveland. I'm very thankful for my opportunity to play my entire career in one great city, the city of Cleveland, Ohio, in front of the greatest, most loyal fans. And I'm very thankful for the love that the team still shows me and that the fans still show me in spite of the unprecedented amount of losing and the lack of playoff appearances, somehow, some way, the fans in Cleveland still respect me in my career. And that means a lot. And I feel very humbled by it. Joe, you're a warrior, you're a scholar, and you're a gentleman. And we love you, man. Congratulations. Seriously, that is incredible. Uh, we couldn't be more proud to have you a part of the team. And our general, man, you are our Hugh Jackson. Mm, thanks, man. That means a lot. No problem. You're the John Dorsey to my Hugh Jackson. <laughs> Listen, I think that does it. Nat, take us out. Joe Hawk yourself.